Welcome to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to season two of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And in our first episode of season two, we have the honor of speaking with the anonymous backer of our Mirror Crowdfund, who contributed five ETH and came in first place on the winner's podium and earned themselves a spot on this podcast. And today we are doxing this Anon for the first time. He is actually someone who has played an integral role in my crypto journey and just successfully closed a large financing round for his company, Unstoppable Domains. We have none other than Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains with us today. Welcome, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. Very happy to be here. Thank you. And congratulations on taking first place in our Mirror Crowdfund and getting to be our very first guest on season two of the podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, Anybody who has been following my journey for a while knows the big role that you've played in getting me into crypto on Web3 and taking a chance on me and believing in me and hiring me into this space when I knew absolutely nothing about crypto. So I really do owe a lot of my crypto journey to you. And I'm so glad that I get to interview you again today. It's been a it's been a while. We used to do this all the time and it's been a long time. So I'm really excited to have you here today. Very happy to support you on your next journey. I thought rehash was a perfect thing for you to do because you're someone who loves to make podcasts and uh, you're someone who also loves DAOs. So making a DAO for podcasts makes absolute sense. And then something that I've done at Unstoppable Domains for a very long time is a lot of our past team members have gone on to uh, start other companies or their own projects. And I always, always try to support those projects however I can, whether that's participating in their angel round or buying their NFT mints or whatever I can do uh, to make that possible. And this time, I, I know I needed to win the podium. So, and believe it or not, I don't always win on some of these uh, some of these bids. So it is, you know, you set up quite some race conditions there at the end and you had me guessing, but I'm happy that I came in first and I'm looking forward to the content that you produce. So as far as I'm concerned, I made an investment and that NFT is going to be, you know, scrolling on my wall for the next 30 or 40 years. So uh, I'm very happy to be supporting uh, what you guys are doing at Rehash. And I'm excited about the DAO itself uh, and watching everyone vote to see who gets to participate on this podcast and and to see how you guys take it over the next uh, 12 months. Thank you so much, Matt. And speaking of making it onto the winner's podium, you had a bit of a strategy there where you waited until the last 24 hours or so to contribute to the crowdfund. I'm guessing you were waiting to see you know, how much other people were contributing, what the first place was at so that you could beat them out at the last minute. But when you contributed, the next highest backing contribution was like 1.5 or maybe 1.69 ETH or something, nowhere close to 5 ETH. So I wanted to ask you, like, what was your strategy with all of this? What was going through your head at the time? Did you really just have that much conviction in rehash? I mean, I do, but like, I'm a little biased. What was going through your head at that time when you made that contribution? Yeah, so typically, when you're in bidding markets, 
you'll see that whatever the number one NFT is will go for, it's like a power law. So it's not like linear. It's not like, you know, if there's a hundred things in a collection, it's not that the worst thing in the collection costs one and the best one costs a hundred and then everything's just a straight line. It's usually the number one in a collection is sometimes twice as much as the number two in the collection. And so that's how I looked at it. And when I saw that the highest bid was, you know, just under two ETH or whatever, I want to make sure I at least doubled that. Um, and because I was not able to bid at the last minute, and if I had been able to bid at the last minute, I probably would have just multiplied by two and bid there. But I actually had some other things to do. So I wanted to go give myself a little bit of cushion there uh, and hopefully scare anybody else off uh, from making a bid. So that's how I look at it on these projects. Everyone has their own uh, bidding strategy. It's a little bit of, you know, hand wavy magic, but I was comfortable with it and I'm happy with the results. So can't complain. Your strategy certainly worked, so props to you on that. So for anybody listening who isn't familiar with you and your background, can you start just by telling people a little bit more about your background and how you initially started to learn about crypto and Web3? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to be in San Francisco all the way back in 2013. And then as any person in their mid-20s, I made sure I went to as many free events after work as possible for the free food. And a lot of those were Bitcoin events. And so I ended up going to a lot of these different events around cryptocurrency. And I got super interested about the non-financial uses for crypto. So this is very early on. And people were taking a look at things like domains, believe it or not, with Namecoin. Uh, then they were also taking a look at things like supply chain tracking which I thought was interesting. And then finally, uh, reputation. And then colored coins was another thing that was that same era. I like to play with things as I'm trying to learn about them. And so I got involved with all the non-financial things because I just thought that those were more interesting. And that eventually evolved into several different hackathon events, several different like small little Bitcoin apps over the next four years, which eventually culminated in ensemble domains. And, and the common thread that actually evolved over that period was apps focused around reputation. And I remember we made a Bitcoin app that was kind of like Yelp. And it meant so that when you made a purchase on something, you could leave a review. And then at the time, a big problem with Yelp was that there was a lot of fraud. And so when you made a purchase with Bitcoin here, you could sign the transaction to prove that you had made that purchase. So it was like verified reputation for small businesses that were accepting uh, cryptocurrency. And having that reputation was cool. And uh, when I was taking a look at domain names, I thought that domain names would be a good way to have a portable reputation so that you didn't have to build a separate reputation system for each different application that you're interacting with. You could just have one username that you could use across those apps to work as kind of like your Web3 identity. And this is before we had the words Web3, it was before NFTs, before all this stuff. But that's how I eventually ended up working on NFT domains. Gotcha. So that was the original vision of Unstoppable. Has that vision shifted over time? Is that still the current vision? Or is it something slightly different today? So it actually ended up being more about that than I had originally anticipated. I remember when we started the company, we actually took a look at the traditional domains market. We said, okay, traditional domains market is, you know, 300 million registered domains and it's like 20 to 50 million small business customers or whatever. And we knew fundamentally that uh, NFT domains were going to be for all consumers on the internet because we thought everyone was going to be sending crypto back and forth to each other. So we knew it could be like 3 billion people. And that meant tens of billions of domain names. But it's kind of hard to imagine, I guess, four years ago that it would have moved this fast. So it's really moved much faster in that direction than we thought. We also initially thought that people would be much more excited about the cryptocurrency use case for sending and receiving cryptocurrency. 
And that is still one of the primary things that people use their domains for. But they're actually a lot more excited about using these domain names as their ID on the internet than we thought before. So people are changing their Twitter handles. You can see that with you know, dot, uh, crypto, dot NFT, dot ETH, several other extensions, dot .sol, uh, .tezos. So people are starting to use these for their identity on their social networks a lot more than I would have expected. So I think it's like much faster than I thought. And it's much more about the new use cases than I had originally imagined. People are building a lot less websites than I would have imagined, for instance. And they're using a lot more for this crypto authentication than I would have guessed in 2017. Yeah. And then one of the unique features about unstoppable domains is that they're owned and not rented. Whereas, you know, when we think about traditional domains, they're all rented. There isn't really this concept of owning things like this. So when you started Unstoppable Domains, how did you get the idea to make these owned and not rented? And why was this ownership part so important to you? And so if you go back and look, when we started Unstoppable Domains, the very first extension we launched, we said, oh yeah, we're going to do renewal fees. And we actually have a blog post from like four years ago. And then we just thought about it. And this is prior to launch. And nothing else in crypto had renewal fees. And when you're starting a new thing, you want to look at what the industry is currently doing. And so domains had renewals. And so it just looked like you had to have renewals. But when we dug into it, because the domains were going to be issued on the blockchain, we wouldn't have the maintenance costs for the server fees. If Unstoppable Domains goes out of business and doesn't exist anymore, the domains are still on the blockchain and users could interact with them and still use them for their identities or their websites or what have you, even if we didn't exist. So it felt disingenuous to take a renewal fee. And then the other thing that's maybe just worth mentioning is nothing in crypto has a renewal fee. I don't know... An, an NFT project or PFP project or anything that has renewal fees on it really in crypto, 99.99% doesn't. So after we did the original versions of installable domains on .zill, uh, I think even prior to launch, we decided, hey, we made an announcement. We're not going to charge renewal fees because we don't actually need it as part of the business model. We believe that we can make money selling verifications for these domain names and selling uh, backup and recovery services or selling website development uh, on top of it. And if you look at the revenue of other large players like GoDaddy or whatever, majority of the revenue is not actually from primary domain sales. It's from all the other services they sell. So we got rid of them. And I hate subscription fees now. And I didn't even realize it's like a frog in a pot. You don't even realize how much stuff you have online right now that just has a renewal fee that just hits your credit card every month and you don't even think about it. It is so much stuff and I'm just kind of tired of it. So I'm happy that we don't have them. I think our customers love it. And it's definitely the crypto native way to build a domain system. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know that ENS has renewal fees. Do you know about like .soul or the other domains? Do they do Everyone. those have renewal fees or... Everyone has renewal fees right now. And I think that long-term, everyone's going to get rid of them simply because it just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're not running a server correct to maintain the records for those domains, then why are you charging a fee for it? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, again, if ENS went out of business tomorrow or Solana naming service or any of these NFT domaining services, they would still be on the blockchain and would still be fully functional. So there's really no reason for that recurring revenue model. Whereas for .com domains, it makes sense because they have some backend infrastructure for uh, maintaining everything there and they need to collect a little charge on that every year. And I think it's too much, but they're doing it. I think that's actually one of the kind of funny or ironic things is that Unstoppable is really approaching these 
blockchain domains or NFT domains from a really Web3 native way, I would say, with letting people have ownership over them. But one of the, I guess, biggest, I don't know if you want to call it criticisms or just stereotypes that Unstoppable sort of has in the space is that it operates more like a Web2 company than a Web3 native company. And I'm curious, you know, to hear your thoughts on that. Like, do you agree with that? How do you separate Web2 companies with a Web3 product versus Web3 native companies in your head? Do you even think this distinction matters? Like, I'm just curious to hear your response to that. I know a lot of other people think about it. And the thing is, is there's a lot of successful projects in the space that are structured the same way Unstoppable is, like vFriends and Dapper Labs and et cetera. And some of the most successful projects in the space have really well-functioning companies that help execute their product vision. And I think the core for being a Web3 product is enabling the consumers to own the digital assets that they interact with. And then the protocol is on chain so that anyone can interact with, update what they want, build applications on top. And even if you look at some of the other companies in the space that maybe are further on the Web3 spectrum from a marketing perspective, they're still ultimately run by a company. And like, you know, their their DAO has a company behind it. And not to call out names here, but all the famous DAOs have a company behind them. I mean, you know, ENS has True Names LLC, for instance, and that's a company, and they're paid on payroll in New Zealand or wherever they are located. And uh, Compound has a venture-funded startup behind their fund. And uh, I believe that Aave has a corporate structure as well. And Chainlink has a corporate structure. So I think Unstoppable Domains is just not afraid of saying, hey, this is how you should build successful Web3 products. Like the, the way to build a successful Web3 product is to stand behind that product and to have a fully doxed team behind that product and to say, you know, yeah, we are, you know, a San Francisco based startup uh, with VC funding. And, you know, my name is Matt Gould and here's my Twitter account and I live over here and here's all of our investors. And you can look up and see anything you want to know about where we're coming from. And I think that's a, an advantage, not a disadvantage in this space. And let's let the product speak for themselves, really. Because at the end of the day, it's about product utility for users. It's not about how cool your project is. There's only so many things on this planet that can be a gifted good. And it's about like, are people saving time and money with your product? And crypto has not hit that bar. In my opinion, if you look across the space, nobody has really done a great job of saving people time and money. And even the best products in crypto, which I, you know, like the stable coins are pretty amazing. A lot of these DEXs are pretty cool. But if you just dig one little piece different, you have the DEXs, the fees to trade on them are thousands of dollars sometimes because the on-chain interactions are just super expensive. So the only people who can use them are whales. And then you have the stable coins. And we recently had Terra Luna just crash this week and break the peg and go, you know, well under a dollar and wipe out a lot of investors' money. And these are the the best products in the space. And and you know, I'm not trying to name names to be mean. Everyone has problems, but there's hacks all the time too, even with inside the blockchain gaming space, right? There was some uh, problems there as well. Where And they're going to make all their users whole. So there, people are trying to step in here and make some improvements. But I would say the bar for crypto is only going to get raised, especially what going into what looks like a, a bear market. End of day, 
you're not going to have a sustainable business if it's based on um, how cool you are or how pretty the picture is on your PFP. You know, there's only going to be a few companies out there that can be the Gucci of crypto. And then the rest of us are going to have to make hay by providing a value. And ultimately, that's saving time and money. So that's what I'm here for. And I'm having a good time doing it. That's a really good point. And I think people are really going to start realizing that now that we've sort of entered into this bear market and the people who are in it for the short-term gains are probably getting hit the hardest and they'll realize sooner than later that, you know, if you aren't seeing the long-term vision of what Web3 is and what crypto is trying to do, then you're probably not going to find as much success in the long-term. And then last question for you about NFT domains specifically is you've sort of talked about how unstoppable domains started, what the use cases you thought were going to be and how that ended up playing out. Looking ahead into the future, what is your best guess as to how people are going to be using NFT domains in, you know, two years out in the future or more? So we're going to keep building on NFT domains as identity. And our first goal so I have like, I have this funny little chart that I have for the engineering team. And I say we have like three ways of innovation that we have to do at Unstoppable Domains. And so short term, we have to significantly improve the UX. So that's what I'm talking about over the next six to 18 months. And that's just, people are still afraid of losing their crypto keys. People are still afraid of signing transactions on the blockchain to set these things up. And I'm not just... Like I'm talking about people who own crypto, not not new people, but people who actually already own crypto on Coinbase or something. They're afraid to interact with Web3 products. So we have to improve that part. And that's the thing that we need to focus on in the next six to 18 months. We got to nail it. And then the second part is we're trying to build a new market. Like it's a new category for user-owned, self-sovereign identity. And I really believe that if we can get user-owned, people-owned identities to all 3 billion people on the planet, that they're going to have a lot more privacy and autonomy and empowerment in their interactions online because they're going to have more say over how their data gets used. And if we want to get there, and this is a brand new market, we have to educate people about what does it mean to have a, a digital identity. So I had a post that I actually just put out on Twitter and we're like playing around with some things and what we want to do is like a consumer behavior, right? And so we just made these things and these things are kind of cool. So if these little crypto cards out and this is like an NFC chip, right? So that I have my like matt.crypto NFT card right here and you can scan this and you can look up my profile and then potentially share contact information. We're experimenting because we want people to understand like your digital web three identity can be part of your you know, your physical world and your web two world and how that interaction is. So that's like the second wave that we have to invest in. And then the third wave, which is the really long wave, and this one doesn't actually decrease. It's more like just a, up and to the right, is building in utility into the product. And that and utility only has two forms, really, that save people time or save them money. And I actually like to say a little bit different. It's like make people time and make people money. And when we're looking at digital identity, how can we help make time and make money for you well, if we can make it easier for you to log in to all 50 apps that you have usernames on where you don't have to worry about all those passwords, we're saving you a bunch of time. If we can pre-populate websites when you're interacting with them with information about yourself, for instance, maybe your clothing size and your color preferences so that your shopping experience could be customized, that's you bringing Web3 data to a Web2 application, then we're saving you time there. And then potentially, if we allow users to share data about themselves when they're interacting with apps, uh, those apps could give them discounts. So we could potentially sell, save you money. So 
those are the three waves of innovation. It's really UX first, and then it's understanding this new concept of digital identity in the medium term, and then long run, it's all about uh, time and money. That was a long answer, but I think about it a lot. That was a great answer. And I really want to dive into that medium term about your digital identity. I think that's something that we hear people talk about a lot. I want to take a step back and first of all, get your thoughts on when you say digital identity, what is it that you're talking about? And how do you compare that with how you think about your physical identity? Okay, so it's a it's kind of an interesting question. So there's several components to constructing a digital identity. And I do think that your digital identity is just a part of your real life identity. And we're trying to bridge that gap between those two. And one way to kind of think about it is your digital identity should enable you to bring around all this information about yourself to all the all the places and things that you interact in in your life right now. And People can think about that right now. It's easy to imagine maybe some more basic use cases like being able to have portable medical records. Like we've been trying to have portable portable medical records for forever. It hasn't really worked for consumers yet. It doesn't feel like it's worked. And then you want to talk about like bringing around a persistent username across applications when you're interacting on the internet and so that it's easier for people to uh, find you and look up information about you or contact you. We want to talk about having a universal endpoint for messaging, right? Where So like right now, you know, you have a different phone number, it's different than your email, it's different than your Twitter handle, and all these things are kind of mixed in different places. So if we get digital identity right, we should be able to simplify a lot of this information overload, we should be able to simplify that down so that your real life can be more pleasant. So I think digital identity should be an extension of your in real life identity. And I think that it should hopefully save you or make you time and money (laughs) by, by making it more convenient for you to interact with all your data. Okay, got it. So when you think about digital identity, you're really thinking about the things that actually make up how people can contact you and how you can socialize with the rest of the world. So your phone number, your email, your Twitter handle, things like that. What about other things that people hold really close to their identity? For example, their political beliefs or their religious beliefs. Do you see all of these things as being important parts of your digital identity? Or are there there other factors too that you see as being important parts of your digital identity other than just your communication methods? So when I'm thinking about digital identity, what we're trying to do is just build tools to make it easier for you to collect all the data that you're already generating about yourself into a spot that you can have control over that. And I guess if you're asking me, do I think that who you are is a collection of all the things that you do then and and think? I think that's true. So I think that like if you have a bunch of data about you know all the places that you go to and and your favorite foods and what you think on these topics and you do have that collection, I think that is a very close representation um, of who you are, especially at scale. And we're already seeing this online. And whether you like it or not, retailers like Amazon and Walmart and Google are all creating identities for you right now, like on your browser right now. They have a cookie assigned to Diana and or an identifier assigned to you. And they know exactly what you like to search for and shop for online. And my problem with that is they're defining who you are. You can't correct that information. And we already know that 
if corporations are in charge with keeping information about you, they get it wrong all the time. They get it wrong on credit reports and they make decisions on loans or acceptance or all sorts of things that are very negative for people. So I don't think you're going to have a choice really in forming some sort of digital identity because it's already being done. And what we're just trying to do is return that back to users so that they can be the ones who can you know review it and make sure that the information about them is accurate or, or the way that they would present themselves. Got it. And then when you think about, you know, what information about your identity we should be putting on chain versus off chain, how do you think about that? Because the the sort of scary thing about putting your identity on chain is that it's public by default and immutable, right? Which is extremely scary. Like even when we think about the things that we've tweeted in the past, I mean, this has come up in plenty of examples that I think people can remember where people tweeted stuff like 10 years ago that they now regret and those got dug up and now there's all this drama and people are getting canceled and all this stuff. And I think we've all tweeted, maybe not harmful things to that extent, but like things that we might not be proud of or don't want people seeing today. And to think that, you know, things like that, like our tweets could be put on chain is pretty terrifying. I, I just think for me, at least, like I would really think twice and three times and even more about every little piece of information that I'm putting on chain for fear that that could be exploited or, you know, that I could just feel embarrassed by that down the line or, or anything. Absolutely. And this is one of the ways that Unstoppable has shown itself to be differentiated from a lot of other crypto products. For instance, with Unstoppable product, you have your domain name, like Matt.Crypto, and then you actually have an off-chain uh, data storage solution for storing a bunch of data about yourself. And our long-term vision for that is actually that what you're storing on-chain is not going to be the information itself. And, and in fact, we're already not storing most of the information that people store about themselves in domains, it's stored off-chain, not on-chain. But what we're storing on-chain is the proof, the verification, a Merkle root. And so when people are looking on-chain, I agree with you. You don't want to publish sensitive data direct to the blockchain, except in some very extreme circumstances, or if you're testing, or if it's early. So people are publishing things on-chain right now. There's a couple of social networks on-chain. I think Lens Protocol is a really interesting one. They're publishing absolutely everything on-chain. I would consider that experimental. And if you look long run, like five plus years, I think the only thing that's going to be on chain is going to be these proofs, you know, like it's going to be ZK proofs and rollups and Merkle roots, and that's it. Uh, and then when you want to go and take a look at that data, you're going to need to have some sort of permission signed access from that individual, at least that's how it's going to work in ensemble domain. So on chain, they'll be able to see some sort of proof that the data is there. And then they'll ask me for my signature. I'll sign some transaction that I'll give them permission to access an off-chain data storage solution. They can then take that off-chain data storage solution, decrypt it, access the piece of data that they need, triple check that it's, that it's correct, use that data temporarily inside their application, and then uh, securely destroy it in a way that I can be certain that they're not keeping my information illegally. So that's how I think it's going to work over like a five-year time horizon. And I think that's actually a much better construction for user privacy. That's actually GDPR compliant. And we're speaking with some pretty large cloud providers, and they actually have entire departments dedicated to zero knowledge clean rooms. They actually, I think they call them clean rooms. And that's where you can submit information in 
through the cloud provider. And then the application, like a DeFi app, can say, hey, we want to check this person's KYC information, make sure that they're allowed to trade in the state of New York. And so I, as the user, matt.nft or matt.crypto, uh, can permission the application. The application sends me a message, hey, can you verify your KYC? I say, yes, you're granted access. We then send it out to the cloud provider, who's a third party, and they're are not storing the data as part of this. And then the DeFi app submits the program they want to run, and then I submit my data. And then the cloud provider allows that to be computed in there in a way that we can feel very confident about the clean room deleting the data afterwards. And the, and the DeFi app gets to store a, a piece of information that shows that they checked my KYC data. So now I can be legally compliant for trading DeFi in the state of New York. And the DeFi app can have a record of that so that they're compliant. And then my information has not been shared to that application or to this third-party cloud provider. So that was a long answer, but I'm saying that I agree 100% and that privacy technology is going to be super important and that allowing users to own and control that data and uh, is going to enhance privacy um, on the internet. Is what you described similar to verifiable credentials and decentralized identity, or is that something else? Just because to break it down for the non-technical people, because once you start saying ZK proofs and Merkle trees, that uh, goes over a lot of people's heads. Yeah, yeah. So verifiable credentials have been around from Microsoft for maybe even two decades, right? And uh, this is the whole uh, DID verified credentials thing, and it never took off. And the reason why it has not been successful is they haven't solved the core problems of having endpoints that users can own and control or providing ways to complete compute on that data while maintaining privacy. So I actually don't think they've solved any of the problems other than having essentially an oracle that says this is true or false. So I would just basically say like verified credentials are great. It's more like a generalized version of Chainlink, but I don't think it solves the core problem around privacy for data sharing or users having a stake in the governance of their own data. So I think they're great. And I think you're going to plug, just to be very clear, you're going to plug credentials into your Web3 identity, like 100%. And I think that the number of credentials that you're going to plug in is not going to be like five or six or even 20 or 50. I think it's going to be hundreds, if not thousands. So there's going to be a ton more verifications and a ton more credentials out there. And then as far as what system people are going to use for those credentials, there's going to be a couple options out there. And the way that we're going to roll it up in unstoppable domains is we're going to have it tied back to your NFT domain because we think that's the most natural place for people to want to build their reputation over time. And we think that using crypto tech to be able to verify that information is going to be a much cleaner solution than what we currently have. Fascinating. Okay. So zooming out beyond digital identity and all of this good stuff. I'm curious, what else is super exciting to you in the Web3 space right now besides digital identity and blockchain domains? Well, I still love all this NFT art stuff. And it's such a weird thing to be in love with. We're definitely entering a bear market. So I'm fully expecting a lot of these digital art projects to drop 90 five plus percent in value or whatever but i'm fascinated i've never cared about art ever like my my entire life and i had fun collecting these nft projects so i have no idea what the future is i'm pretty sure the future you know there's going to be a few million dollar 
animal projects out there, I'm sure. But there's going to be a lot of other stuff out there too. And I'm excited to see more Web2 companies cross over to Web3 and using this technology to help people collect and keep memories about their uh, life. And art is an expression of that. So there's all sorts of things I collected. For instance, I used to collect baseball cards when I was a kid. I have a sign autograph david justice baseball card somewhere in my you know dad's basement and i have no idea where it is but if that thing was digital it would be so easy for me to find it right and then i had magic the gathering cards like i just had a bunch of stuff as a kid right and i lost a lot of those memories and i think that this nft art and this uh, nft collectibles thing has a real opportunity to make it easier for people to collect their memories digitally and and keep them longer term and there's all sorts of other cool stuff that's happening there so i'm fascinated with that uh, again i always love the non-financial use cases for uh blockchain so it makes sense that like this is the part that i'm super interested in and that's enough for me right now the other thing that's fun is the memes right I will admit, I love the memes in a bear market. You know, I love watching the bear go to Goblin Town or or whatever else is out there on Twitter. I think it's hilarious. And, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for people who may be suffering trading losses right now and, you know, just be safe out there. But I think the memes are also fascinating in crypto. So I hope that doesn't slow down. And with Elon now owning Twitter, I think they're only going to get even better. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on crypto memes. And then I guess also everything around this NFT wave that we saw in 2021. Do you think that the types of projects being built out moving forward as we're entering into a bear market that could potentially last for months or even a year plus. Do you think the types of projects being built in a bear market are going to be different? Like, do you think that there's going to be as many animal PFP projects? Like people had so much fun with the animal PFPs over, you know, in a, in a bull market when everybody's doing well and everyone's in a good mood and these are just fun things. But in a bear market, do you see projects like this actually succeeding or do you see other types of projects really coming to the forefront and being more popular than the types of projects that we saw the most of during a bull market. Mm. Uh, so one thing I think is going to go away is the speculation because the speculation just doesn't work if the prices aren't going up. And then it's very hard to say which projects were mostly speculation versus which projects had connected with something that people wanted to experience. So I think the speculation is going to go away. That would be one prediction. Another prediction I have is that regulatory arbitrage is not going to be that successful. Because if you're building a technology product, really, you want something that's 10 times better, right? And so when I was looking at NFT domains, I thought to myself, well, this is 10 times better, because instead of having a domain name sitting on a server that people couldn't build on top of very easily and that people didn't own and they couldn't move around themselves. Now you had something that a user could own and then they could you know, update it however they want to. And the developers come in and build whatever type of application they would want on top of there without having to talk to, you know, .com or VeriSign, whoever, whoever owned it. So like much more open, much more open system. So I thought it was literally 10x better. But if you look, a lot of these projects out there, they're actually just latching onto regulatory arbitrage. And I personally think that a lot of venture capitalists in San Francisco are, or sorry, venture capitalists, I should say globally, right, are uh, culpable 
because you know VCs love regulatory arbitrage, and the two that they latched onto have some very negative effects. And so one of them was the ICO bubble in 2017, where people were creating these tokens. And I'm worried that a lot of these tokens don't have a lot of long-term value. I'm not saying all, but I am saying 99%. And if you read the tokens, the tokens have no rights. They have no guarantee to any of the future earnings of the project or anything like that. And so if you're looking at just the preference stack of common shares and bonds and equity and everything, where do tokens fit? Like they're all the way at the top and they really have no claim. So I think tokens are way overemphasized in the space. And that's just a regulatory arbitrage for not trying to have a security with the SEC. So um, I don't think that'll last because the SEC is super slow. But eventually, they'll be able to close that gap, either by regulating these things or by opening up and, and permissioning more of these things to happen. So that's one form of regulatory arbitrage. And then uh, DAOs. Like, I don't think there's that big of a difference between a DAO that's committed to a project and then committing to that project and running that project. And, and then a company that's committed to a project like Unstoppable Domains and running that project. Our code is on chain. It's an open core model. You can see what it is we're building. And we're just as committed as at Unstoppable to building NFT domains for all 3 billion people on the planet as um, any DAO is committed to their DeFi project or whatever else they're working on. We have the same, if not more, level of commitment than they do to making this successful over the next five or 10 years over the long run. So those those are a couple comments. So speculation, I think, is not going to work. I think regulatory arbitrage around tokens is just not showing consumer value. It does not make your project more valuable to necessarily to, to release these tokens, which was a huge thesis in the Valley. And then DAOs is another form of regulatory arbitrage. I think they're just going to become more and more like companies. And if you see a lot of DAOs now are incorporated. So we'd love to hear about Rehash. Are you guys incorporated as an LLC? We are not, no, we're okay. a less formal DAO at the moment, but we're getting there. We're, we're just, we're a few weeks into rehash. So we're, we're still in the very early stages and we're getting there. But you're considering um, it, if you, like setting up, setting up an LLC for course. a bank account. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there, see, course, there you yeah. go. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Rehash just got spun up like super quick. Like it, it everything happened in like two weeks. Um, got so it. we're, we're still in the early stages of building that out, but uh, definitely, that's part of the long-term roadmap. So if I'm curious, if you had to give your best guess, how long do you see this bear market lasting? This is hard because we just got here. I will say, though, this feels like a 2001 moment for specifically crypto. And if you look back at 2001, people got hit hard for several years on that one. And And why do I say it's like that? Well, up to 2001, a lot of people in the dot-com bubble were making money by selling to each other. Like, like Yahoo would sell ads to eBay, right? And then and so there's this there's this incestuous moving of money around inside the ecosystem. Uh, but there was not a lot of utility being provided to everyday consumers. And when I say it like that, I feel the exact same thing about a lot of things in crypto right now. And I do think that there's huge utility being built out for store value around Bitcoin and store value around Ethereum even, or uh, stable coins for sending payments. But a lot of these other projects are really just recirculating money from one really famous NFT project to the next, right? Or like everyone's trying to move to the next hot thing or the next hot DeFi protocol. You really saw this in DeFi for uh, yield farming. Everyone just jumped to the new thing because the new thing made money. The old thing eventually kind of just petered out. And so to me, that feels a lot like 2001. So there's nothing wrong with it because you needed to try out a bunch of ideas to see what works. But then what happened after 2001, after that crash, 
was people started to focus on how are you making me time and money? And if you look at the huge winners out there, it's Google, right? And then they saved you just a ton of time on when you're trying to search for things. And uh, it was things like Amazon, where they like Jeff Bezos was the world's cheapest man trying to figure out how to get you goods for even cheaper to your house. Um, and that's when those companies started their 20-year journey. And both of those companies, by the way, existed before the bubble crashed. So maybe that would be another prediction I would make is that you know, the, the real big successes coming out of crypto are going to be companies that already know how to make money, that are working on saving people or making people time and money and have those commitments to those 10 plus year uh, timeframes. So it would not be things that are focused on speculation. It would not be things focused on regulatory arbitrage. Um, I think those are less likely to provide lasting value, particularly in a down market. So Harsh predictions, I guess, maybe for crypto. And we'll see. I mean, the the Fed could always turn back on the money printer any second now, and then uh, all bets are off on what happens in crypto land. Because the truth of the matter is what we did find out for sure in this cycle is that if governments print a bunch of money, crypto just goes straight up. So uh, like, like regardless of what's happening in the rest of the world, uh, so like there's always that X factor in crypto. That's one of the reasons why people hold it. I think that makes sense too. Uh, but we'll just have to see where this goes. Yeah. I mean, then not to continue being pessimistic, but if crypto completely ceases to exist in five years and everybody goes back and works for fan companies and we return to our lives, you know, pre-crypto, why do you think that would be? Mm. Well, I think that's impossible. So I'll just put that out there. And I actually think that the uh, FANG companies are also going to suffer during this downturn because it's actually, if you look, it's not just crypto who's having a moment here. Tech stocks are down you know, 40 to 70% across the board. So I should have been more broad in my generalization there. And a lot of these FANG companies have not been providing value either. They've just been taking money from people. So I think that like Facebook and Amazon, well, maybe not Amazon, but a couple of these companies are also susceptible. Google, Google has not innovated search, in my opinion. I know there's some people from Google out there who could be mad at me at this, but you guys have not innovated search in a decade. I'm, I apologize. It feels the same as it was a decade ago, except now there's more links that suck. And that's like the only difference between the last 10 years years on Google. Yeah, I know you're doing a great job making as good as you can, but I'm just saying those companies have not really innovated either. I know a lot of really smart people. I had a tweet about this sitting at Fang companies, and they're basically just sipping lattes and not doing very much, uh, sitting on the roof of Hooli, if you've seen the Silicon Valley show. And like, I think that's going to end too, if we have a recession. It just depends on how deep it is. And maybe the good times will keep rolling. You know, I think the markets are, Bitcoin's off 50% so far, but I think the stock market's only down like 15 or something. But if we, if we actually have a 2001-like recession where the S&P 500 is down 30, 35% or something, uh, we'll see some of these changes. So hard to say right now. I personally think it does feel like a more serious correction here for tech industry more broadly, um, because tech just hasn't been delivering value. And we have a lot of other things to invest in as a, as a humanity. Like we definitely need to build a lot of more energy, right? Alternative energy or just energy in general. And it seems like we're going to be spending a lot more money on defense, given the uh, political events happening in Eastern Europe. So that means there's less money to spend on tech. So I think the industry should probably wake up here and uh, realize that they're going to have to put a little bit more effort in to earn that consumer dollar. All right. Well, on that bleak note, I want to switch gears a bit and end on more of a positive note. And so uh, what we're doing for this season of the podcast is bringing back a fan favorite game that I played with guests on a past podcast, and it's called This or That. And uh, have you played this game, Matt? I think I know what we're doing. Yeah, I think I can figure this out. 
Okay, so so real quick, I've got 10 pairs of words that I'm gonna say to you, and you're just gonna tell me really quick, rapid fire, what which word you prefer. So I'll say A or B, and you just say, you pick one, okay? And there's 10 pairs of words, and we're just gonna blow through this really quick. So first one, Bitcoin or Ethereum? Hmm, Bitcoin is the first one. I know I'm a sucker. All right, that's fair. Yeah, it's just really quick. No explanation needed. No, uh, no thinking needed. Just real quick. Crypto or Web three? Web three. NFTs or DeFi? NFTs. Apes or punks? Apes. Bear market or bull market? Bear market. Building or investing? Building. Books or podcasts? Books. San Francisco or Reno? Uh, San Francisco. <laughs> ah, mountains or lakes? Mountains. Okay, and the last one, Gen X or millennials? Hmm. Wow. Uh, I'm going to pass. <laughs> so. You can say boomers. Yeah, boomers. <laughs> yeah, crypto thing, boomers. boomers. Yeah, yeah. That, that's boomers for the win. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't want to end. I don't want to end negative. I'm super positive on the promise of new technology to make people's lives better. And that's why I'm here. Like I wouldn't be working on this. This wouldn't be my full-time thing if I didn't believe that it was possible. I do think that, you know, markets come in cycles and so and i think the pair markets are the best for building so i think that actually we're going to get some of the best stuff coming out of crypto over the next two three years so that's the silver lining to any market turmoil that we might have and like the good news is when we learn how to use something new it doesn't go away like you said are we going to all going to go back to web 2 and i'm like no way like this technology is invented it the time does not go backwards so like for sure we're going to be using more web 3 tech over the next 3 to 10 years and now we you know we get to spend more time in the lab building it i don't think there's anything wrong with that I love it. Great note to end on. I totally agree. Looking forward to the bear market too myself. Uh, last thing, Matt, before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you and get in touch with you and also where people can go to learn more about Unstoppable Domains. So you can go to unstoppabledomains.com and then on Twitter, that's at Unstoppable Web. And then I'm also on Twitter at Matthew E. Gould. Uh, and uh, just feel free to reach out. I'm on there. My DMs are open. And uh, look forward to spending the next several years building even more crypto stuff. So, And you guys are early if you're listening to this. We are still early. All right. We'll include all those links in the show notes. Thanks so much, Matt, for taking the time to come on this podcast. Thank you again for all of your support on Rehash. Um, can't wait to make you proud and show you what Rehash becomes as a community. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this first episode of season two. We'll be back real soon with another episode of Rehash. <laughs>